What's up, church? Hey, I think we can give the Lord a hand. Amen? We're, we're excited that you guys are here, and uh, today we're starting a series called Reset. And uh, we're primarily talking about what it looks like to reset our identity. I think so many of us this year are going to struggle with this very thing as we move forward in our faith, as we move forward in our, our personal lives, our marriages, and all the things that we really want to accomplish. Matter of fact, uh, back in uh, the, the Nazi days, and, uh, Nazi Germany wanted uh, to really do one thing. Uh, that was to really uh, put themselves on a pedestal. And as they put themselves on a pedestal, one of their main objectives was to take all of their captives and remove their identities. For instance, if you remember the Jews and the Holocaust, one of the primary things that they would do with a Jew is they entered in concentration camps. They would take them, they would strip them of all of their clothing. They would literally shave them from head to toe. They would take away their name and they would tattoo a number on them. And no longer would they be known as a people from Israel. No longer would they be known as a Jew. They would be known simply as a number. They would have no real value, no real worth. And so that number literally may say 103,227. Or 190,114. But that's all they would be known for. No longer would they be known for their name. Their value was literally taken away. It was stripped of them. And they were supposed to feel as if they had no hope, no real value, or no real worth. And that was their main objective. It's just to totally take their identity and remove it from them. And as if they took their name and their identity, that they could take them and just demoralize them, and they could remove any hope and any real purpose from their life. I personally believe that the enemy wants to do the very same thing to people who are not Christians and people who are Christians but are not living for God. For example, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, that um, be alert of sober mind. He says, you're What The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus said it in John chapter 10, verse 10 this way. He says, the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that, what? You may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I want to give you hope. I want to give you a future. I want to give you purpose in your life. The enemy wants to do everything but that. He wants to take your identity and remove it. He wants you to believe that this life revolves around you. For instance, let me give you two perspectives. There are some people that are here with us today, in this very room, at this very moment, that your belief is this, is that you really don't have a lot of purpose in your life. Like you look around right now and you look at your marriage, you look at your finances, you look at your circumstances, you look at your past, like like you wonder, how did I get here? Like what went wrong? I I used to really seem to be on the right path. I was making some right decisions and all of a sudden things just kind of went wayward for me. And like you're here and you feel hopeless. Like you're not even sure what it looks like for you to move through this year. You're, You're not sure what it looks like. And you go, I'm not real sure that God loves me. I'm not real sure that God has a purpose for me. And like you feel far off and you feel distanced from God. And you go, I don't know how I get back. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, where do I move forward? And you really just, you honestly, you feel like you're broken, that you're tattered, that you're worn out, and that God can't use you. On the other hand, there's another perspective, and there's another group of people that that's not how you feel. Actually, you feel really good about yourself. Like, you actually think that this is the year. 
And you've been reading books and you've been getting ahead on leadership things. And like you feel like this is the year for me. Like this is the year for my family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have advancement in my career. I'm going to have advancement in my family, my marriage, all of these things. Like my best year is this year. And you really believe that this is the year to make a name for yourself. Like this is the year to pass on things to your family. This is the year for you to get advancement and all of these different things. And honestly, you don't feel like you're far off from God. You in some sense, though you wouldn't say it. You, you feel like you're above God, like there's really not even need for him in your life because you're working to pursue things for yourself. Matter of fact, um, there was an English poet, and uh, his name was uh, William Henley. And this is uh, a poem that he wrote. It's called Invictus. Originally, he didn't have a name, and he penned this uh, towards the latter part of the 19th century, but they later gave him a name. But as he was going through some things in his life, this was his heart. And his heart, in a sense, was that I am literally my own God. Look what he says. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He said, There's nothing that I bow to or bend to. Matter of fact, he goes on and he says, In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor have I cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, he said, My head is bloody, but it's unbowed. He says, I don't bow to anything. It doesn't matter the circumstances. He said, I will not surrender. And he goes on, he says, Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I fear nothing. And look how he closes it. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And see, the enemy wants you to believe one of two things. He wants you to believe a lie that you are so broken, that you are so sinful, that you are so dirty, that you could never enter the presence of God. Or he wants you to believe that you are so successful and that you've made such a name for yourself that your soul, in a sense, is unconquerable, that you're the master of your fate and that you're the captain of your soul. Both areas are a lie. And so the question is, is how do we allow God to hit the reset button in our life? Like, how do we figure out, God, where's the balance? How do I live with real purpose and real vision for 2015, but Lord, how do I surrender my heart in a way where I position it to where I serve you and I love you? That's the balance. That's the reset that I think many of us need because it doesn't matter if you feel far off from God or you feel like you're ahead of God. The goal and the objective this year is to surrender and position ourselves under his authority and his leadership in our life. I think Peter gives us a really good picture of this. Is he's talking um, to really the Christian church. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he's going to describe to them what it looks like to be God's people. Now, I want you to understand the context of who he's writing to. He's writing to a bunch of people, um, Greeks and Jews alike, but that they put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're under intense persecution. Like there's a day, uh, literally, that they're living under... Uh, persecution and Roman rule. Nero is uh, really over all of these things. He's a dictator, uh, and he is literally doing everything he can to punish people who would be a part of the way, or as we call them, Christians. He wanted to take their lives, he wanted to take their purpose, and he wanted to destroy them. He literally wanted to take their identity and remove it. And here's here's what Peter says. He goes, even in the midst of persecution, even as you're running for caves and catacombs, even as you're spreading out through all the areas of uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, and other regions, he says, don't forget what God has done for you. He says, this is what it looks like. He says, you are a chosen people. 
Earlier, he says, you've put your faith in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And thus, he's made you a living stone. He says, you are what? The people of God. He's building himself into you. And he says, because of that, he says, you are now a chosen people. Like there was a day where you were far off from God. There was a day where you didn't have the gift of mercy, the gift of grace. He says, now you're a chosen people. He says, you're a royal, what? Priesthood. He says, you're a holy nation. He says, you're God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If you can get this picture, Peter says, there was a day, guys, where you were far off from God. Like, where your life didn't really have purpose, where you really didn't have meaning. But he said, he's called you out of that, and now he's set you up, and he's giving you what? A a hope, a plan, a future. And it's not based off of our own merit. It's not based off our own strength. It's not based off our own agenda. It's not based off of what we do or even what we haven't done. It's based off of someone else. He then says this. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says, because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, he says, now you have the greatest access that you've ever known to the Father. See, like you and I, may, we may look at this and you go, okay, that's awesome. Like, okay, I get it. I was once far off. God has saved me. He's redeemed me. But what does that really mean? Because I don't understand what it looks like to be a royal priesthood. I don't really understand what it looks like to be a holy nation. Yeah, I get I was in darkness and God's called me to light. But other than that, like this doesn't resonate for me. It doesn't really make a lot of sense for me. Well, let me help you understand what he's saying. See, back in the day of the Jewish nation, God had called Abraham to be a a people. And he set that nation apart. He called that nation to serve him, to love him. And that name eventually became the nation of what? Israel. And Israel would love him, and uh, they would serve him. And through Moses, he would establish a tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And that's where people would go to have fellowship with God. Later, through really the glory days, after King Saul and King David, eventually Solomon would build a temple. And that temple would be the place where people would go and meet with God. But let me explain kind of who could meet with God and when they could meet with God. See, there were really four parts of the temple. Outside of the temple, there's this place called the outer court. Then from the outer court, there was the inner court. So somebody say outer court. Okay. Then there was the inner court. Okay. And then from there, there was the holy place. And then from there, there was the most holy place. And the most holy place is what you are also here known as the holy of holies. Now, let me explain something to you. I don't know of many Jews here. I've met a handful over the course of the last three and a half years that have actually visited Stone Point. But most of us are Gentiles. Because you're a Gentile and you were not a chosen people by God originally, you weren't of the nation of Israel, you never got to go into the inner court. You always had to stay on the outer court. You never got access to God. You never got to go in the temple. None of those things. You really were were kind of constricted in how far you could go to the presence of God. You were on the outside looking in. And you never got to experience the inner court. But get this, even if you were the chosen people, you were the nation of Israel, did you know that 11 of the 12 tribes actually never got to go inside the temple really either? They had to stay on what was called the inner court. There was actually another place that was called the holy place, and it was designed for the priestly tribe. They had to be of the Levite tribe. If you ever read the book of Leviticus, and you see all the laws, and you see all the things and how they should do temple worship, that was for the Levites. That was for the priestly tribe. And they actually got to go into the holy place. But there was only one person, and they were called the high priest. 
that they were actually allowed to go into the very furthest point of the temple. It's called the most holy place. It was the holy of holies. And do you know, not only did they get to go in there, and it was one person, the high priest, they had limited access, meaning they only got to go one day of a year. It was called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And they would actually get to go in, and that was the day that they broke from the, just the normal sacrifice of morning and evening, and they had the kind of the final sacrifice, and they were asking God to forgive them of all the things they didn't know about. And they were really asking for really sins for the whole nation. And that high priest would go in and he would sacrifice an animal and he would plead with God and God would meet him on the Ark of the Covenant at the mercy seat of God. And because of the bloodshed and the approval of the sacrifice, God would forgive their sins and the people would celebrate when the high priest walked out, not just because their sins were forgiven, but because he was alive. Because if the sacrifice wasn't good and his heart wasn't right, then God would just consume him and that guy would fall dead. Matter of fact, they would chain him in case things went bad, they could pull him out from underneath the veil. But he was limited, and they only got to see the presence of God in a limited form and fashion. See, I want you to understand that to enter the Holy of Holies, it wasn't even for kings. It wasn't for diplomats. Even to get into the holy place, you had to be a what? A Levite. Anybody in here a Levite? No. Anybody in here a Jew? No. We're a bunch of Gentiles. We don't even get to go into the holy place, let alone the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Like, we're so limited in terms of our access to our Heavenly Father. Matter of fact, there was a king in Israel. His name was Uzziah. You can see the full story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But Uzziah was a guy who loved God. And matter of fact, he loved God, and he was a king of Judah. The nation of Israel split, and when it split, there was the northern king, uh, and they were called Israel, and then the, the southern kings, they were called Judah. In Israel, they had many, many kings, but none of them loved God, not a one. Of the southern kings of Judah, there were several, and Uzziah was one of those kings that did love God. He loved God like his father did. However, there became a point that his fame became so great that he lost sight of all that God had done. Matter of fact, Uzziah... His prominence was so awesome that they knew his name in Egypt. Like way down below uh, in Egypt, they knew who Uzziah was. He had over 2,000 men that he oversaw. And of those 2,000 men, they oversaw another 300,000 men. Literally, at his voice's command, 300,000 people would be dispersed into war if he wanted them to be. He was that powerful. And he loved God. And the more he loved God, the more God expanded his territory. But get this. There was a day that Uzziah decided that it was his job to go into the holy place. The problem is that Uzziah, just because he was a king, didn't make him a priest. He wasn't a Levite. And he certainly wasn't a high priest. And so he rolled up into the temple, literally. He rolled up, okay, into the temple. And he had his incense. And he was followed by about 80 priests. And those priests were warning him, and they were pleading with him, King Uzziah, no, you cannot go into the temple. You cannot go into the holy place. You cannot burn incense to God. God will stricken you. He will punish you. And it said that he got so mad and angry that he lit the incense, and he began to yell at them. And in that moment, God went from a king who loved God to a king stricken with leprosy. And God judged him. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 26 that at that point, King Uzziah was actually bound to a house, and his kingdom fell to his son, who also loved God. And King Uzziah, a guy who loved God, believed that he was, what, the captain of his fate, the master of his soul, and in one moment, one choice, 
His kingdom fell, and he became a man stricken by leprosy. And if you're stricken by leprosy, get this, you're, you're, a, cast, you're a cast out. Like, nobody has anything to do with you. The priest, the moment they recognized he had pre, uh, leprosy, they left the temple. Then King Uzziah said, now I have leprosy. What good is it that I stay? And he left. His kingdom fell, and he became known not as the king who loved God, not as the king who had many, many men under him. He became known as the king who had leprosy. Why? Because his heart was obstinate and proud, and in one moment of his life, he believed that he was in control. He believed the lie that all of his fame, all of his fortune, all of his power came from himself and not from God. And he entered into what? The holy place when he shouldn't. Now, you may be here and you go, wow, that's pretty crazy. You know what the crazy thing is? Is that that's about an Israel, that's an Israel king's story. But let me tell you about another king's story. Um, this king actually didn't come to be served, but to serve. This king didn't come to make a name for himself, but to make a name for his father. This king was literally a servant among men. This king left all that he knew to dwell among a people who were far off from God. Not to make a name for himself, but to bring you into reconciliation with the Father. This guy's name was Jesus Christ. John 3 says that he was high and lifted up, and anyone who would look to him would be saved. That's what Nicodemus needed to understand, that you must be born again to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that moment when Jesus literally comes to be Lord of your life, then get this, it's no longer about what you've done or haven't done, it's about what he's done for you. And as he's lifted up, you can celebrate in this one area of your life that it's no longer about your plans, but it's about his plans. Matter of fact, get this. The writer of Hebrews gives us a really good perspective about being able to have some access that we've never had. Because you remember, the, 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 what, the closest you could ever get to God was the outer court. You're never going to get into the inner court. You're never going to get into the holy place. You're never going to get into the most holy place. But there was a day that Jesus died, that he was crucified for your sin. He paid a penalty that you could never pay on your own. He was dead, buried, rose again. And because of that, he overcame sin, death, and he conquered the grave so that you and I may have hope and a future. Not of our own accord, not our best life now, not a better house, not a better car, not a, a better income, not more power and prestige, but that our sinful ways could be taken apart, moved aside, and we could focus on God, and we could be reconciled to Him. And when you have that, you get something that you've never had before. And Look what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, now we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Did you just read that? You get complete access to Jesus Christ. And I love my brother's emphasis back in the back row because I think he understands this. Like, I don't understand why we don't understand this. You were far off. You were not even a people. You weren't chosen. You weren't of the priestly tribe. You had no access to God at all. You were on the outer side court looking in, hoping, longing for something that the people of Israel had, knowing that you're never going to have it. And then one day Jesus came, died, paid a penalty for you, so that now you could have access to God. And he did it through the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, he opened us, what, through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Like, now you have access and you can actually come 
before a holy God and you have complete access. It's not limited anymore because of what Jesus has done for you. And he says, and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, he goes, you have complete access. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Amazing. Matter of fact, let me just show you this, this verse one more time that Peter wrote. Because maybe you can see it in a different way now. He says, you were a chosen people. Do you get that you weren't chosen before? That because Israel, they turned their hearts against God, God set them aside in some ways, and he allowed the gospel to come to a Gentile people, a people that didn't know God, that a people who worshipped many other gods, and that you and I could now be a part of the chosen people, that we could be a part of his great plan of salvation. Then not only that, he says, now you can be a part of a royal priesthood. You know what a priest does? He has access to the Father. If you're the high priest, you get complete access. He says, you're a royal priesthood. You get complete access to God now because of what Jesus has done. It's not limited. Like, you don't have to come to me like, Pastor Brandon, can you pray for me this week? I mean, can you kind of get me to God? You don't need me. You don't need that priest. You don't need confession anymore. You don't need another person. You have the person of Jesus Christ who's mediating for you before the Father. Like, you have all the access you've ever needed and more. You're a holy nation. You're God's special people. You were once in darkness, and he's called you out to experience new light. Look at this, verse 10. You were not a people, now you are a people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. See, what he does is this. He gives you an opportunity to enter his presence. He gives you an opportunity to enjoy a relationship with him. And you get to exalt him with your life and with your lips. You see that? Enter, enjoy, and exalt because of what he's done for you. Like he called you out of what you formerly were, and he's made you new. He's given you a new identity. And when you have an identity in him, it allows you to fulfill the purpose that he's called you to. And you may be wondering, well, what is that purpose? Like, Brandon, I get it. Okay, he's called me out. Like, what is my purpose now? Can I explain to you the purpose? It was in verse 9. He called you out. He set you apart for this one reason. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you. You ever wonder what your life is about? You ever wonder, like, what should my purpose be this year? Like, you ever wondered, like, okay, where do I go? Look, here's your only objective this year. Would you become less so that Jesus Christ becomes more? Would you make him known in the way that you live your life? Would people be able to look to you and expect the second coming and the return of Jesus Christ because you live so devoutly for him? Would people be able to recognize that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, called out of darkness into his wonderful light? You were not a people, you are a people. You did not receive mercy, now you received mercy. And may people see that joy evidenced in the way you live your life. And would you declare the praises of him who did that for you? That's the question. Amen? In 2007, the Washington Post uh, actually did a, uh, a little bit of an experiment with a guy named Joshua Bell. Now, you're probably wondering who Joshua Bell is. He's not an author. He's not an artist. Uh, but he's actually one of the world's renowned violinists. Matter of fact, he was in Washington, D.C. And uh, about 
three weeks earlier, uh, prior to the experiment that the Washington Post wanted to do with Joshua Bell, he was at the Library of Congress, and he was playing his $3 million violin. Literally thousands upon thousands of people go out, venture out to see Joshua Bell each year. Most of the time, they play, pay at least $100 a ticket to see this guy. He plays a 17th century violin, and he is one of the best there is at what he does. And people literally flock out to see him. But the Washington Post wanted to take him out of his environment, and they wanted to set him in the middle of the D.C. metro station during rush hour. And they set him in the middle of this subway station, and he is going to be tasked with the job of performing all of his classical pieces in the midst of all the chaotic rush. And the question is, is how many people would slow down and recognize what they had before them? And of 1,027 people that actually passed by in about a 40-minute window, statistics say that there were about 27 people that actually slowed down. Of those 27, there were many of them that they would actually be heading to an escalator and they might stop. There were one or two that actually got on the escalator, realized what they heard, hopped on the other escalator and came down. But out of 1,027 people, over 1,000, there were about 20 to 25, 27 people that actually realized it. Most of them just went on the business of the day. They didn't even realize what they had before them. There was one lady who realized what she had, and her name was Stacy Carraqua. And Stacy had actually seen Joshua Bell three weeks earlier at the Library of Congress. The only difference was is that at the Library of Congress, she couldn't get close to him. She could hear his music, but she couldn't enjoy really his presence. That day in the D.C. metro station, she was baffled by what was going on, but she decided that she would be late to the Commerce Department at work, and she would enjoy the full benefits of the concert. And not only the full benefits of the concert, but she would actually stand within 10 feet of Joshua Bell, and she would listen to him play classical pieces that most of the world's never heard before. And she enjoyed the whole concert. The only thing is, is that she was a little bit stunned and baffled by everybody else's response. And this is the quote that she gave the Washington Post. Look at it. She said, it was the most astonishing thing that I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping. Not even looking. Some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? She said, how could you have a world-renowned violinist playing as you head to work and you can't even see before you what you have, enough to slow down and take it in? See, I think that this is a picture of the church. I think it's a picture of every single one of us in this room. See, I want you to understand that because of Jesus' great gift on the cross and his sacrifice, not only has given you access But you're not on the outside looking in anymore. You've got complete access. And where you could actually stand and gaze at the face of God. That you could bow bow your heart contritely before him. That you can position yourself before your heavenly father. And you have access all the time. And the question is, is this. If that is true of us, why is it that we seem to resemble more of the thousand people who missed what they had before them in Joshua Bell? Do we seem to be a church who we might understand or know the context of this verse, 
that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that you've been set apart, you've been called out of darkness, you weren't, once were not a people, you are now a people, you weren't, once had not received mercy, now you've received mercy, and you know all of this, and yet you do not tap into the greatest power you have in being able to come into the presence of God on a daily basis, and being able just to position yourself and ask him for a reset. And the thing is, is this, the question is, is why have we become a people where we depend so much on ourselves or we believe the lie so much about ourselves that we can't enter his presence when actually the word of God says that you can. See, there are people here today that your decision today is this, is that it's time for you to go all in your faith. Like you feel like you're far off from God, but today is the day that you enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you allow him to just hit the reset button in your life? Like reset your purpose, reset your hope, your dreams, your vision, all of those things, and that he actually takes you and he makes you a new creation in him. And today's that day for you. There are others that the day for you is this, is that you need to go home and you need to scrap all the goals that you've made about yourself and you need to ask this one question, Lord, how do I honor and serve you this year? How do I walk not a step ahead of you, not a step behind, but Lord, how do I walk within the spirit? And you need to ask him to reset that in your life. You need to ask him, Lord, what does it look like to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood? Lord, what does it look like to have great access to you and on a daily basis? And Lord, how should that determine my steps? And that's really the focus for you this year. See, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that most of us have not asked God to reset our identity, but we've actually asked him to reset our circumstances. Like this year has been the year that you say, God, if you'll just get me out of this job, and you'll get me a new job. Or God, if you'll just fix my marriage, and you'll really fix where I'm going. God, if you'll just fix my church, or God, if you'll just fix this ministry, if you'll just fix all the problems that are going on around me, then, then lo and behold, maybe I'll find out where I'm supposed to go. Now listen, this is a message for all of us in here, right? I don't think this year is that. I think, matter of fact, is that we don't need a reset with our circumstances, Okay? And oftentimes we plead with God to change our circumstances, but we really don't need a change in circumstances. We need a reset with our identity. We need to know who we are so that we see our circumstances through a different lens. Next year or next week, I'm going to just talk about what it looks like to reset our focus. But listen, you can't reset your focus until you understand who God has called you to be, who he's given you access to, and it's the Father through the Son. So my prayer is that would change you. And, and your heart's desire, and it would change really your response to him as he makes you a new creation in him, as he reminds you of your great purpose because of his great love for you. Um, there's going to be a couple of our pastors that are uh, back there at our um, Connection Center, and uh, we would love to visit with you. If you're here and you're a first-time guest, we'd love to visit with you. If you're here and t- today you just go, Pastor Brandon, it's time for me to have a reset, and uh, we'd love to visit with you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, any way we can, we'll be back at the back. But thank you guys for being here, and we pray that God would reset our identity in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Uh, Father, I thank you, Lord, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, you've given us great access to the, the, to the throne of grace. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that we should have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, opened through the veil, that's the body of Christ, because he was broken on our behalf, because his blood was spilt, Lord, we now have great access to the Father. And so, Lord, may we draw near with glad and sincere hearts, and may you remind us who we are, not who we think we are, not who we hope to be, 
Not who we haven't been, not what we've done or haven't done, but Lord, what you've done for us. And I pray we'd follow and that we would live in you. That we would be rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with joy and confidence because of your great love that you've lavished on us. In Jesus' name, amen.